surfers in the movies are often troublemakers who only care about partying and catching gnarly waves, like Sean Penn's character in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. When you get out there, do you ever fear for your life? Well, Sue, I'll tell you, surfing's not a sport. It's, it's a way of life, no hobby. It's a way of looking at that wave and saying, hey, bud, <laughs> let's party. <laughs> but surfers are actually some of the most outspoken protectors of our oceans. Because of spending so much time in the water, people become very sensitive to any time that the water quality is bad for any number of different reasons. And so surfers end up becoming very passionate about environmental issues. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, surfers at the forefront of the environmental movement. First, epic battles, swordplay, and magic are usually the stuff of fantasy. But thanks to LARP, fantasy is allowed to bleed into reality. LARP stands for Live Action Role Play. Think of it like Lord of the Rings comes to life, where you get to create your own character and wield foam swords on a mock battlefield. And for many of the players, LARP is more than just fun and games. It's a lifeline to belonging. Here's With Good Reason, producer Matt Dara. In real life, Joe Compton is a dad with an office job. But when LARPing, he's Sai, a death jester from the dark reign of Der Damarian. Zarn Vangal was born from Sai, a wandering death jester from the dark reign of Der Damarian, with a wicked and depraved hunger for blood and cries of mercy. The story goes that, you know, my kids came across me as they, you know, they were wandering children through the forest and they, they heard me howling at them. Sai came across a small group of young ne'er-do-wells and wooed their senses of power and greed. I promised them the, the chances to teach them you know, how, to, uh, how to be brigands in exchange for them bringing me people to eat. The larger the band grows, the more Sai watches his back. Treachery of the young knows no bounds and they are already beginning to watch him too closely. Joe first got into LARPing when he was a teenager. He and a friend were driving around a local park and saw some people wearing funny clothes and swinging foam swords. Yeah, I rolled down the window and I stuck my head out and yelled some mild obscenities and called them nerds, and eventually they, uh, they decided to challenge me. So he pulled over. I climb out of the car, I walk down, they talk about, you know, hey, if you think you've got it, bring it. I'm like, okay. They quickly showed Joe how to play, and even though he took a pummeling, from then on, he was hooked. It's very much a hard-hitting, fast-paced, rugby-like atmosphere with a heavy, heavy dose of theater kid mixed right in the middle of it. And you get to, to be silly and you get to be over the top and everyone's there for it. LARPs come in all shapes and sizes. Some prioritize role play and others focus more on combat. The rules to most combat LARPs go something like this. If you get hit in the chest, back, butt crotch or anywhere else as a part of your torso and you're unarmored, you die. If you get hit in the arm, you drop whatever's in your hand, you put it behind your back. If you get hit in the leg, you take a knee on that leg. Two limbs is death. And so um, if you wear armor, it gets you one additional hit to whatever area it's covering. Combat LARP events can last multiple days and typically involve dozens of players, sometimes even hundreds, clashing on a mock battlefield. Right before the battle, whenever everyone's ready to go, you hear um, just this drumming thump of swords against shields over and over and over, and it's all rhythmic. And so people will start hitting their shields and stomping the ground and hitting the shields and stomping the ground. And you'll get someone across the side of the field to start howling. And then there'll be a, a bunch of howling in the middle of it. And then you'll get screams on another side. And then they call lay on and everyone just runs in and crashes against each other. And you can start to just for a little while, just for a little while, you can separate fantasy from reality and just dive into the fantasy and, and feel like I'm really doing something. Over the years, Joe's had his fair share of epic fights on the battlefield. 
but he says nothing compares to the intensity of his first battle. And so the battle starts and there's people all around me. And I noticed that I got shieldmen to my left and to my right who are blocking for me so I can get in there and get those kills. It was awesome. And I felt like a million bucks until I turned around and I thought that I was going to be able to take on this, this, this character that was easily six and a half feet tall, full armor. I can't see the man's face. He looks like a demon. And uh, he raises his shield and his uh, sword, and I go for it. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get him. I'm going to do something. And it did not matter. I ran straight into it, and he hits me as he runs towards me, knocks me back a solid five or six feet. I land square on my butt. I'm looking up at the stars, and then he's like, man, are you okay? I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> in 2000, Joe joined the Army as an intelligence analyst. He had a son on the way and needed to provide for his new family. His job brought him all over Europe, including the war in Afghanistan. Italy was an amazing country. Um, I loved pretty much every minute of being there. Germany was beautiful. Croatia was a jewel. Um, living in, in Bosnia, I was in Mostar, and I got to get up and go to both the Catholic side and the, the Muslim side of the city. And so it was, it was cool. Um, Afghanistan was a lot darker. Like so many veterans, Joe had trouble readjusting into society after multiple deployments. Well, initially, I didn't want to do anything that had anything to do with violence. So I avoided violent movies. I avoided violent games. I just I didn't want to do anything like that. It took me a long time to, once I realized what PTSD really was and, and how things worked, I didn't want to engage in it. That's when he rediscovered LARP. His kids convinced him to get back into it, and eventually he founded Zorn Vongel in 2015, a family-friendly combat LARP. He says the LARP community was a lifeline to belonging. I realized that I do enjoy it. I do like playing the games, and I can see where it's, as long as it's fake and we're not treating it like it's real, then I'm, I'm okay with it. I can, I can still be out there and be the, <laughs> the weekend sporty nerd who swings foam swords at people. And I can have a community that, that wants to listen and support each other. And so that's like, really, I keep saying that because it's, it's all about the, the community and the support. It's building, building the relationships with people who sometimes they're, they're hardcore uh, athletic uh, folks like um, one guy who's a titled MMA fighter. And then you've got these other people who they're like I was whenever I first joined working third shift at a Walmart you know, their life hasn't blossomed yet, and they're just finding an outlet for them to be able to have a little bit of a fantasy to escape from the, the rigors of life. And it's, it's all beautiful because everyone shares in it. No matter what you are on the outside, when you're there, you're a member of, of a larger family. Zorn Vongel has been around now for about seven years. They have a core group of players who come out and practice every week. These days, Joe's less interested in the combat aspects of LARP. His passion is helping the next generation of misfit kids gain confidence and find community. For With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. There's something so blissful about catching an ocean wave on a warm summer's day. But climate change, pollution, and construction projects are threatening surf breaks all over the world. H. Gelfand is an interdisciplinary liberal studies professor at James Madison University. And he says many surfers have taken up the mantle of environmental activism to save our oceans. H., how long have people in the history of humankind been surfing waves, do we think? It depends on how one decides to parse it out. In Hawaii, Polynesians have been on the Hawaiian Islands for several thousand years, and so for at least that long. And there is some evidence of people in Peru, in West Africa, also using different types of devices to ride waves. But in the modern sense of riding waves on a surfboard, that is exclusively to Hawaii, and that is probably a couple thousand years old. 
What about animals, porpoises, dolphins, right? I would assume from the beginning of all of those animals' existences that somehow they figured out in the process of feeding that riding these waves would be enjoyable. I one day watched uh, an entire flock of pelicans riding waves and deliberately flying from the beach back out so that they could ride waves again over and over again and being completely shocked because I had never seen birds do that before. And there are scientists who study this all over the world and observe this phenomena all over the world. When do you think people actually started adding sport to surfing? The consensus would be that that was the Hawaiians and that when they were surfing, at some point, some concept of competition and game got involved in it. And I I will point out that Native Hawaiians were surfing with solid wood surfboards that were about 15 or 16 feet long, weighing perhaps 200 pounds. These are huge pieces of wood. So one can imagine the type of strength that that would take simply to get that into the ocean and then be able to stand up on that. And so surfing in Hawaii is very, very associated with the Hawaiian royalty, with Hawaiian culture, religion very closely connected in concepts of understanding ocean currents, very, very connected in with ancient Hawaiian culture. What started your interest in looking into surfing as a research project? My interest in surfing began in perhaps the most non-academic and non-intellectual manner that one can imagine, which is that I had a dream about surfing one day. I woke up and thought to myself, Let's investigate because I was just on the tail end of finishing up my PhD dissertation and was looking for a new topic and began to think about surfing in a very intellectual way after picking up some surfing magazines and seeing the massive variety of mechanisms by which surfing is connected to the rest of American culture. And that's in terms of fashion, lifestyle, physical appearance, physical fitness, and any type of vacationing that you can think of anywhere in the world where there are beaches and waves. So how strong is the connection between surfers and the environmental movement? I think of California surfers back in the 1950s as kind of a do-your-own-thing group. Right. I don't think of them as environmental activists. (laughs) The connection is, is quite strong. One has to contemplate, again, Southern California, where most of my research is is based. Surfing is a huge part of the culture in that part of the country. One often thinks of either 1950s movies or 1980s movies where the surfers portrayed are always high and they don't have jobs, when in reality, they're the whole cross-section of occupations. There's doctors, professors, dentists, lawyers people from the corporate world who are all out in the ocean every morning, every afternoon, every evening. And because of being in the water and spending so much time in the water, people become very sensitive to any time that the water quality is bad for any number of different reasons. So for example, if there's a sewage spill, people who are in the surfing community are going to be aware of it and get sick very, very quickly. For example, if there is any type of garbage that ends up, which often does, especially plastic garbage in the water, people are going to be aware of that very, very quickly. And surfers are also out in the ocean looking back at the coastline and looking at all of the development that's going on, looking at construction projects, looking at transportation. So it gives you a unique perspective of understanding the human development of the coastline. So surfers end up becoming very passionate about environmental issues. Can you think of an environmental moment, a disaster or a project that really spurred a lot of this environmental activism? I've worked on a a large number of them. And one of them that I think is super interesting involves a project that did not get built Uh, which was an effort to build a massive freeway over the Pacific Ocean from Santa Monica to Malibu. This was in 1960 that this was proposed, just at the time that the interstate highway system was being built. And people had large visions in that post-World War II scientific period where there were ideas of conquering nature. 
And the idea was to have this 11-kilometer-long freeway built on a rock jetty, essentially, that would go out into the ocean that was also going to then destroy 11 kilometers worth of surfing breaks in central Los Angeles. And that project was doomed by one 18-year-old kid named Robert Feigl who set out with petitions at every beach, at every surfing theater, at every surf shop, and got community awareness so that the power behind the surfers just from this one kid got all the way up to Sacramento, the state capital, so that when the bill to build this came before the state assembly, California Governor Pat Brown did not sign the bill. That's an amazing feat for just one kid to get involved. Uh, I'll give you another example, which is a much more profound in terms of its scope uh, case, which happened in 1969 in Santa Barbara, which is a little bit further up the coast from Los Angeles. And Santa Barbara is a section of the coastline which is very oil rich. And so starting in the late 1950s and 1960s, there were plans to start building these huge oil drilling platforms in the Santa Barbara Channel. And in 1969, the one of the very first oil platforms that was built with the very first drill bit that's put down into the ocean floor, the workers didn't quite get the mechanism correct and they created a huge oil spill that soiled the beaches of Santa Barbara and Ventura counties, and eventually down into Los Angeles and San Diego counties uh, with oil. And the oil was so dramatic, it not only covered the beaches, but it also killed thousands and thousands of animals. And this got so much press coverage because people who were spending so much time, again, doing the recreation near the beach could now no longer do this. And there are accounts in every newspaper from California of people going out and watching animals dying because they were covered or had digested oil. And the oil company's response to it was to write this all off as if it didn't matter. The involvement that people got on the local level in Santa Barbara, it was junior high school students, high school students, college students, wealthy people from the community. Everybody got involved in this effort to clean up and to deal with this. But the real impetus for the, the thrill of the activism that I investigate comes out of just students in Santa Barbara. And I thought I would just mention to you one of the, the great things I found. The newspaper in Santa Barbara is called the News Press. And so many people from such a wide cross-section of the community wrote letters to the editor when people still did that with newspapers. And one of the most remarkable that I came across is from a junior high school surfing club. And I'll just read you, if that's okay, a brief excerpt of what they wrote to the newspaper. They said, and this is a quote, there's a strong possibility that because of the oil situation, many of us young people will be stopped from using the beach for an undetermined period. Where will we go? What will we do now with our time? The situation is sure to create problems for the community as well as citizens in Santa Barbara. And I just love that idea that they were so devoted to surfing that this oil was going to ruin what they were going to be able to do with their spare time, that they were almost suggesting to the community that they might become truants or a problem for the community because their mm -hmm. happy pursuit had been destroyed by this oil spill. Some of the surfing movements coalesce around trying to protect particular waves that repeatedly occur or breaks. Tell me about that. Right. So this is really how the development of the environmental movement among surfers happens. And I'll give you an example of a place, a very beloved and well-known place in Southern California in Orange County called Dana Point. And it's named after a very famous writer, Richard Henry Dana, who was involved in the animal hide trade along the coast of California in the 1830s. And he had declared Dana Point, the place now named for him, to be the most beautiful spot in all of California. And it's a very dramatic place if you look at old pictures of it. It had two large headlands and a very natural bay. And because of these two headlands, it created this very, very large and distinct wave that in the surfing community starting in the 1930s became known as Killer Dana 
because it generated such a large and powerful wave, and surfers loved it. Well, in the 1960s, the state of California decided in looking at the increase of its population and the type of lifestyle that the state was selling to people about outdoor recreation, that they wanted to build a huge marina. And because Dana Point had a natural harbor, they pinpointed it as the location for this natural harbor. And so they decided that they were going to effectively destroy the natural harbor that existed and build a huge man-made marina. The break wall of the marina today, because the project went through, is over two kilometers long. It's absolutely enormous. And of course, what it did was it destroyed Killer Dana. And there was one guy, he was in his mid-50s at the time, named Ron Drummond. And he was both a surfer and a canoe surfer. He would ride the waves in a canoe with his dog. And because he was always with his dog, <laughs> there is all sorts of film of him because people were fascinated with the fact that the dog would be in the canoe. And <laughs> Drummond, because he was really smart and very good at engineering schematics, actually spoke with the state of California and the Army Corps of Engineers and came up with ideas about how they could save the wave, but they refused to do it. So he did convince them, interestingly, to take some of the dredged material and make a new surf break. But they put it so far out into the ocean that it didn't really create much of a wave at all. So it sort of was a failure. But that destruction of Killer Dana last for decades in terms of its impact. Uh, just as an example, the, the famed environmental leader, Yvonne Chouinard, who is the creator of Patagonia, for decades, he would buy the back cover of surfing magazines and he would put in them Surfrider Foundation advertisements to get awareness of environmental issues and almost always spoke about Killer Dana as this moment where because the community didn't get involved to save their break, the break got destroyed. And so Killer Dana becomes that moment where people say, yes, the community has to get involved. It never occurred to me that you could destroy a wave or a curve of a wave or an intensity of a wave, a repeating one, right? Right. And this is can happen in all sorts of, of different mechanisms. So in Southern California, the waves are created of effectively in two major ways, one of which is if there are offshore reefs, the second of which is with the material that is deposited from rivers. And in Southern California, as in much of North America, nearly all of the, the rivers are now dammed. So all of that, the rock and that sand no longer reaches the ocean. So the replenishment for the places where you have good waves can be very diminished if you have dams. And if we are in a moment like we are now with climate change, where the sea level is going to rise, that puts the reefs under much, much more water. So there is another threat to waves. But if you are doing large scale construction projects on the coastline, people don't realize, unless they're environmental scientists, that sand in the ocean on the coastline is moving all the time. And when you put barriers up to that movement, the sand can either build up in tremendous waves, which is where you see sometimes, especially on the East Coast, these massive beaches where you go out forever from a boardwalk, or you see no beach at all because all the sandy roads, because the movement of the sand has been interrupted. So any type of even small project on a coastline can really damage surfable waves. What about the surfing community in Hawaii? Are there surfers there who've led the charge to preserve waves or breaks? Absolutely. The movement and the effort to protect waves in Hawaii is very much tied in with the Kanaka Maori or the Native Hawaiian rights movement and has been very targeted against large corporations and developers, primarily from the mainland or Japan, who have tried to destroy anything and everything in Hawaii's ecosystems in order to build large-scale hotels and marinas. So there's been a lot of effort in Hawaii as well. Is the East Coast surfing community any different than California's? Yeah, you know, the East Coast is so different because most of the East Coast, because of that long continental shelf, doesn't get quite the, the great waves that the West Coast gets. But there are spots, and maybe the most interesting spot in the East Coast surfing community is in New York City, 
where it probably is, I think if you were to look at the statistics on it, the most demographically unique and diverse surfing community in the United States because of the fact that you have a subway, the A train, that goes right out to Rockaway Beach, which is in Brooklyn, so people can reach surfable waves without having to drive. And if you look at the people who are involved in that community, it's a lot of Latino and African-American people from around New York City who are involved. So it's not just the prototypical middle to upper class white people that you will see predominantly in many of the surfing communities in California. Although I will also point out that even in Los Angeles, there are increasing numbers because of a lot of nonprofit and education groups to get people of color out to the waves too, but definitely not very easy to get to the beaches on public transit in Southern California. It's much more of a challenge. So would you say the the main challenges that the environmentalists among surfing communities are fighting have to do with development along coastlines? I think it's a whole host of different issues. Sewage is a very, very big problem in a lot of places because we unfortunately still have a lot of cities that are releasing sewage into the ocean, whether it's fully treated or semi-treated. That's a major, major problem. San Diego, for example, that is the probably single biggest factor in inhibiting healthy surfing. So Tijuana, which is the big city just to the south of San Diego, has no sewage system whatsoever. So a lot of that raw sewage flows right into the ocean and right up the coast into the communities like Imperial Beach in San Diego County. So you'll see oftentimes in Southern California beaches, they'll have posted what's called the fecal coliform bacteria count so that you can be aware of how much of that matter is in the ocean at any given time. Because unfortunately, people end up with infections mostly in their eyes, ears, and noses from being out in the water. Uh, But plastic pollution is a very, very huge problem as well. Nobody likes to, to be out recreating in the ocean with a lot of garbage. And unfortunately, because of our addiction to plastic, plastic is all over the world's oceans and is a very, very big issue. H. Gelfand is an interdisciplinary liberal studies professor at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Bird watching isn't a sport in the traditional sense. There are no touchdowns or raucous crowds, but birders are no strangers to competition. Matthew Anthony is a history professor and success coach at Eastern Shore Community College. He charts the rise of birding as a sport. Matt, you've been a birder since you were in the Boy Scouts. What started birding for you back then? Yeah, um, I was about, gosh, probably 10 or 11 years old, and I was in the Boy Scouts, and I went away for my first you know, scout camp away. And uh, we had the opportunity to work on different merit badges. And uh, one of the ones that they offered was uh, the bird study merit badge. And, you know, one of the things we had to do um, to earn the badge was to identify on our own 20 different species of birds. And I I have to be honest, that was, uh, you know, more birds than I was really aware of at the time, but it just was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And so I came back from scout camp And I told my parents, I said, we got to go to the bookstore and I'm going to get a a bird book. Can you rattle off as many as you can remember of the birds you identified for that batch? Yeah, see what I can do. You're asking me to dig deep. But uh, I remember there was a great (laughs) cat bird. I think that was the very first one. I do remember um, uh, there was a ruby-throated hummingbird. I remember a field sparrow. I remember, I think there was an oven bird. I'm sure there were, you know, Northern Cardinal and and uh, House Finch, Song Sparrow, those kind of things. And, oh, I'm, I'm sure there are ones that I'm forgetting. You know, I have the old lists. I, I had handwritten lists. I still have those somewhere. <laughs> what is it like in your adult life to witness a rare bird for the first time 
For instance, I heard you were the second person in the state of Virginia to ever see a black whiskered vireo. So actually, it was just a couple of years ago. It was in late September of 2020, I believe. And uh, I had been out birding here on the eastern shore. We were, um, it was a, a myself and a, and a, a couple other friends. Um, Ned Brinkley was there, uh, Roberta Kellum. Um, and there may be some other folks that I'm missing and I, I apologize yeah. to them, but we were out birding at Sunset Beach down at the southern tip of Northampton County and uh, it was fall migration. Um, and so it was not a particularly heavy migration day. We weren't seeing a ton of birds. I mean, there were birds around, but it wasn't one for the record books. And so we were kind of packing it in and I had a little bit more time before I had to be somewhere. And I said, oh, I'm going to go down to Kippa Peak State Park and, and see what's down there. And uh, so I'm, I'm out birding. I'm with a couple of people. And I pretty quickly get on this group of red-eyed vireos uh, kind of working some trees. And next thing I know, I'm on one with just this big honking bill, these black whisker marks. And I had a pretty good inkling of what it was. But, you know, I mean, it was totally unexpected. So I sort of told the people I was with, I was like, point your cameras at that tree and just start firing, you know, just start taking pictures of this thing. And, uh, you know, maybe some colorful language as well. <laughs> and then next thing you know, we, we aren't seeing the bird anymore. And, and we're not sure, did we get pictures of this bird? Were we able to document it? And, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty rare sighting. So I'm not necessarily going to just go and throw that out there if we haven't really done our due diligence to document this bird, right? So, you know, some time passes, we're not refining the bird. Well, I called Ned up and I said, Ned, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not going all in on this one quite yet. But I was just looking at a, a Vireo with some black whiskers. And, and he said, what did the bill look like? And I said, well, you know, it was, it was big. <laughs> it was really big compared to the red eyed Vireos it was with. And he said, he said, I'll be down in a, in a moment. And so he got down there and we spent, we were walking up and down this trail trying to find this bird and just not finding anything. And so we were about ready to pack it in. And, you know, this was just going to be the one that got away. And this bird popped up and I get on it and I'm like, that's the bird. And of course it takes off flying and I'm sort of following with my finger and it comes to rest in a tree on the other side of the trail. And I'm like, there it is. Get your binoculars on that. And sure enough, that was a black whiskered vireo. And, and then it hung out for the whole rest of the day. And, you know, a couple dozen folks, I think, got to see it. And it was, it was pretty cool. You know, I was with a girlfriend once. She was a birder. She had just gotten word from somebody in her circle that there was maybe a white owl of some sort. She jumped in the car and drove two hours just to see it. And amazingly, she actually saw it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's actually a pretty common thing in birding circles. You know, if there's a rare bird that you want to see and if you keep a list, a personal list, or if you're maybe competing with friends or others, you know, you would want to see that rare bird because you may not get another chance to. And so, yeah, it's not uncommon. I mean, I've had many times, you know, I get a phone call and I'm like, sorry, I, I got to go, you know, or or I'll, <laughs> I'll get a phone call and I'll tell my wife, hey, I, I'm sorry, but uh, it looks like it looks like I'll be in Virginia Beach this weekend, or it looks like I'll be in, uh, you know, Northern Virginia this weekend or, or what have you. And uh, yeah, and she's mostly okay with that. <laughs> you study the rise of birding as a sport. I never thought of birding as something competitive or a sport, just something really enjoyable. Yeah. And I will say, you know, there's different philosophies and people do it for different reasons. And so for some people, they really aren't interested in that competitive aspect and they're more interested in it as a sort of relaxing or therapeutic activity. They're more interested in being outdoors and interacting with nature. Maybe they're more interested in the ornithological dimensions of it. Other people get really into the competitive aspect. They are trying to build up their list totals. Maybe they're competing with others. So it there's not really a one-size-fits-all approach, but it, it for some people and uh, for some styles of birding, it can be quite competitive. There's a film, actually, called The Big Year. It's based on a, a book that was written by Marco Masic, and uh, it chronicles the exploits of some folks who were competing to see the most species of birds in all of North America. Um, and that is competition at a scale that um, I have not attempted. Um, but, uh, you know, they, the film kind of gives you a window into that. And um, it's not that far off the mark. I mean, people tell me, they say, have you seen the movie The Big Year? And I say, yes, I have. And they said, are birders really like that? And I say, well, some of them can be. <laughs> You've looked into how back in the 60s and 70s, the birding community actually made a conscious effort to emphasize birding as a sport. How did it do that and why? 
Yeah, for sure. And so I will say on that again, you know, there were different styles that were practiced by different folks and, and different takes on this. But for some people, um, they really wanted to emphasize these sort of hyper-competitive sporting elements of birding. Um, and they really did so in a, um, in a way that foregrounded masculinity. And in part, I think this was a response to some of the popular culture representations of bird watchers uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and some of them even continue to the present day. But um, bird watching was often used in popular representations as a signifier of uncoolness, nerdiness, and in some cases, it went hand-in-hand hand with a lack of masculinity. Like what? what? What popular culture references like that were there? So one of the most prominent ones, and, and I think one of the ones that often gets used as an example for this, is the Beverly Hillbillies. And um, you saw in that, in that television show, you had the very gendered uh, representations of bird watchers. You had um, the male bird watching character who was shown to be very nerdy, very unmasculine. He was actually contrasted pretty deliberately in the show with a, a football player, you know, and so th that juxtaposition there. Um, the female bird watching character, Miss Jane Hathaway, was played in quite the opposite. And so for her, bird watching signified a lack of femininity. And um, so it, it typically corresponded with transgressive or improper gender performance. Why do you believe that there actually was a deliberate effort by some in the birding community to make it appear more sporting and masculine? How do you know there was that conversation? So, you know, one of the research avenues I pursued was an oral history project with uh, folks who have been involved in this kind of nascent birding culture. And some of the stories that they told me, you know, these people who were birders in that era, they were absolutely mortified that their peers might find out that that they were bird watchers just because of what that represented and because of these popular tropes. Um, one of the folks I spoke to told me about how he had found a noteworthy bird and it made the local paper. And the gym teacher actually sort of put him on the spot and said, I hear you're a bird watcher. And he is telling me this story. And he said, you know, I basically just mm -hmm. wanted to melt into the floor as this was being revealed, you know. And so by foregrounding those elements of sport and competition and masculinity, these young male birders could kind of push back against some of these stereotypes that they were so, you know, affected by. Do you find that women are um, as interested in birding as men? I think that women are certainly as interested in birding as men, if not more so. I think that whether or not they are represented in, shall we say, leadership roles or, or, or roles of high status in the birding community relative to their prevalence, I think that's a very different question. I think we're still seeing that there are some issues with representation that have not you know, quite been addressed. You think there's some barriers to entry in a way, uh, socially, culturally? I do think that's the case. And I think um, I certainly saw that in my historical research. You know, some of the women I spoke to who were involved in birding, they were combating the perception that they were not as skilled as men, that they were not as serious as men. I had one person who I spoke to say that when she would go on a birding trip, she would have to lay pretty clear ground rules at the outset this isn't a date. I'm not here to date you. I'm here to go birding with you. And I'm every bit as serious as you are. And I think that, you know, perhaps it's not quite as overt as that, although, you know, in, in, in some places it, it may well be. Um, but I think there's still some progress to be made on that front. Last question. What kind of binoculars do you have? I have a pair of, let's see, they're Eagle Optics, I think. And, uh, they are a direct descendant of a hand-me-down pair. I had an old hand-me-down pair given to me by a high school teacher. And most binoculars carry a lifetime warranty. And I eventually uh, flipped a kayak, and those binoculars that I had went into the salt water. And when I sent them off for repairs, they were unable to repair them. And, and under the terms of the warranty, sent me a brand new pair. So I have a new pair, but they are a direct descendant of the kindness that was shown to me by a teacher when I was in high school. That's wonderful. Matt Anthony, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Matthew Anthony is a history professor and success coach at Eastern Shore Community College.
Throughout his career, Bruce Lee starred in some of the most iconic kung fu movies. But Bruce Lee was more than just an action hero. He promoted a philosophy that spread worldwide. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Be water, my friend. My next guest says Bruce Lee heavily influenced his own teachings. Jerry Beasley is a ninth-degree black belt and a recently retired martial arts professor at Radford University. From the 1970s until 2021, Jerry Beasley developed and taught one of the only college-level Asian martial arts programs in the country. I actually had heard mostly about Bruce Lee as a film star. I hadn't seen the movies because we didn't get them here in Southwest Virginia. But in 1973, the news media was just all um, involved in the fact that Bruce Lee had died of unknown causes. Um, I just graduated, actually, and I heard Paul Harvey, who was a popular commentator at the time, say, Bruce Lee has died. And I was so, I'd read so much about his movies and I hadn't seen any. So uh, I got an opportunity to see one just right before then. I thought, oh man, we've really lost an important person here because this guy is so charismatic on the on the screen and his martial art is so, so excellent. I had just graduated in philosophy. So I was into some of his writings. He wrote some articles for Black Belt Magazine. And um, one of the articles talked about being no style, but being all styles. And as a philosophy major, those kind of questions just really intrigued me. How can you be all styles, but be no style? And so I set about trying to figure that out. It's so interesting that this relatively small, formerly all women's college on the edge of Appalachia became nationally renowned for its martial arts program. Well, that's interesting, but here's what happens. First of all, there are no colleges or universities that offer master's degrees or even bachelor's degrees um, or doctorate in martial arts. So there are no colleges training a professor to do that. So why was I different? Well, I was a martial artist. Um, I got my black belt in 1971, two years before I graduated from college. And everything, I was just immersed in martial arts every book that was available, every magazine that was available. And um, I knew that's what that was my calling, to teach martial arts. And so I wrote all of my research papers and did all of my research in martial arts. I studied how an Asian martial art prospered and grew in America. Right. And what were Americans embracing that was different from their traditional way of seeing conflict? Well, our culture was very much the John Wayne. You punch them, you put up your dukes, you move around, and you smack them with a jab and a cross. It was kind of a boxing approach. Now, the Asians, completely different, they kicked. And in fact, in Korean society, one isn't typically going to use their hands to fight with because the hands are used to write with to do important things with. So they kick. Um, The kicking was not well accepted in America as being... um, sporting-like. It was, you're breaking the rules, you're kicking. But that's what the martial art was all about. It was breaking all the rules and doing what works. And so that's how those two kind of add conflict. But yet the Americans, uh, well, (laughs) everyone, all of the students would come into the class and they would accept these Asian themes and, um, and Asian rules and regulations, and they would abide by them. And what happened to most students, and this is why it was so important at the college, they might be not doing very good in math or maybe not even passing algebra or uh, let's say a geometry or something like that. So they come into a karate class and they, they learn by carefully measured steps. They go from a white belt to a green belt to a brown belt and then to a black belt. And the black belt takes about three to four years. And typically after you've been through that instruction uh, for four years, you change your the way you see yourself. You're now a leader in the class. You're a black belt. And so I found that this this happened to a lot of college students who uh, gained self-esteem by learning how to defend themselves. The whole idea on martial art is fighting without fighting. That is, 
you fight in the classroom symbolically. And then out in the street, you can walk away. You have the confidence. Has the self-esteem that you acquired by becoming a black belt in training, have you ever had a moment in real life where something inside you felt like it was responding to the confidence that that gave you? Sure. I play guitar in a band, have for years. And we were at a uh, performance one time, uh, um, a hotel. And one of the people, as I was leaving, I was with my girlfriend, and we were leaving, and um, some guy in the audience yelled out at me, uh, SOB. And um, I, I just looked up at him and I waved and said, Hey, thanks, man. And when we walked outside, she said, Did you know what he called you? And I said, No. And then she told me, and I said, ha, that's funny because I just assumed that, uh, you know, they like me. That's self-esteem. See, that's, that's knowing you can do a good job. Yes, right? Tell me about why Bruce Lee was so esteemed. It wasn't just that he faked karate on the big screen and made it super popular. He actually did so much himself in his young life. He certainly did. He burned the candles at both ends, as they say. He was a fanatic over working out. My instructor, Joe Lewis, who taught, took lessons from uh, Bruce Lee, Joe Lewis was world karate champion, a world kickboxing champion. Uh, he was voted the, the greatest fighter of all time. This is the Joe Lewis of karate and not the Joe Lewis of boxing. That's right. The boxer is L-O-U-I-S and the karate is L-E-W-I-S. Is a, is a simple way to uh, denote the difference. Um, he took lessons from Bruce Lee, admired Bruce Lee, idolized Bruce Lee to some extent. And Mrs. Linda Lee, his wife, uh, Bruce Lee's wife, said that Joe Lewis and Bruce Lee were two of a kind. And Joe was much more into the pressure testing, actually making it work, get out on the floor, do the fighting. Bruce didn't do that as much. So Bruce got to learn something from Joe. Joe got to learn something from Bruce. They just they were just terrific partners there for a couple of years. And um, then they went their separate ways. Bruce went on to uh, China to start acting in movies. He couldn't really get into movies here in the U.S. because, you know, they don't want to put money onto an unknown name. So he had to go to uh, China to really get an opportunity to uh, do the kind of movies that he was interested in doing. You've said that through Joe Lewis, your instructor, you learned a method that is full contact, that gives you an adrenal dump what are you talking about? What sort of method of Asian martial arts was Joe Lewis teaching you? Well, it's what we call risk recreation. In other words, if you were to ask a uh, race car driver why in the world they would drive at 200, 250 miles an hour, they would tell you it's the risk. It's the excitement. It's the adrenal dump that you get from knowing that you're just beating the odds. And so... Um, the same with sparring. You, you, you're sparring with a person that you know could cause you some harm and is trying to cause you some harm. And it, there's just a real excitement when you overpower the person. It's what we call a killer instinct. Now, in the animal world, um, a dog might bite a cat, and you would think that was the end of it. But once they, there's certain stimuli that causes that dog to not only bite the cat, but to tear the cat all to pieces. It's called a killer instinct. So how do you get that in a fight type of situation? And why is that important? Well, it's important because if you're very passive and someone attacks you in the street, uh, maybe shoves you or says, give me all your money, then you might not be able to fight back. And the majority of people can't fight back. They'll never be able to fight back because they haven't understood that, that adrenal dump. What that does is it mobilizes you. And what you want it to do is empower you. Big difference there. And so... Um, as we would perform this and as we'd spar, you'd have this sense of, I'm overpowering my opponent. I've got my opponent in a position here. But because it's sport and because it's your friend, you're able to turn it off. You're able to slow it down. You're able to not take that final strike. You know, I think the martial arts are practiced across the United States. We're not in the same frenzied craze, maybe, as we were in the 70s. But why do you find them still valuable? Uh, nothing has changed as far as the need for martial arts. We still need the self-esteem. We still need that ability to, to retrain our mind so that our mind feels that we are, have self-worth, that we're worth something, that we should fight back and we can fight back successfully. Chuck Norris was famous for this. He, they asked him, 
Chuck, how did you become so famous? And he said, uh, not famous, but so successful. And he said, I would always envision myself fighting the opponent beforehand, and I would always see myself winning because I'm a black belt, because I'm a winner. And so he carried that self-esteem all the way in, in acting and everything that he did. So in all those years, 40 years or so, 45 years, I really emphasize, let's learn a few skills, but let's learn them from different angles. So our presentation is always going to be different and our success is always going to be apparent as we do that. Well, Jerry Beasley, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you so much. Everybody was Jerry Beasley is a ninth-degree black belt and a retired martial arts professor at Radford University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Special thanks this week to Natalie Bainter and Jenny Taylor. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Oh,